On June 3rd, 1918, Madame M. went to her local police station and reported that a large number of people, many of them children, were locked in the basement of her house in Paris and in basements all around the city. She asked that two officers go home with her to verify her statement and rescue the prisoners. The allegations, however, were false, and she was taken instead to St. Anne Hospital, where she was deemed to suffer from hallucinations and psychosis, featuring ideas of grandeur, royal ancestry, and, most curiously, the belief that people around the world had been substituted with clones. On April 7, 1919, Madame M. was transferred to a psychiatric hospital. This description, laid out in the Bulletin of the Clinical Society of Mental Medicine in 1923, was written by Jean-Marie Joseph Capgras and J. Reboul Lachaud. It opened an article whose French title translates to The Illusion of Lookalikes, or Doppelgangers, in a Chronic Systemic Delirium, and it was the first ever case study exploring a truly bizarre delusion. Sufferers of this condition believe wholeheartedly that people around them, strangers, but mostly those they know and love, are imposters. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Because of that 1923 publication, we now call this delusion Capgras Syndrome. The piece went on to detail Madame M's unusual and downright creepy symptoms, talking about her belief that she was royalty and secretly fabulously wealthy. I was left 200 million francs by my grandfather, Louis XVIII, she said. He left me the Ile Saint-Louis, and I am due 740 million francs in rent. She believed that she had been switched at birth, so as to rob her of her riches, and stated over and over again that she would have been a good and benevolent benefactress if she had not been so unjustly treated. The main themes of her delusions, however, were superstitions and disappearances. Like I said, she believed that she herself had been swapped out at birth and was the victim of kidnapping, and she was obsessed with this subject. She even thought that changes had been made to her body, her hair, and her eyes so that someone else could take her place. She said she knew of two or three lookalikes in her neighborhood who looked exactly like her and wore her clothes so that they could alternately replace her when she was out of her house, and she carried identifying documents with her everywhere to try and prove that she was the real Madame M. Her children were substitutes too, she said. One was switched out while with a nanny, and another was taken away and replaced by a child who was then poisoned and died. 
Madame M believed that the funeral she had attended for this baby was a funeral for someone else's child, and that her child had actually been swapped out and taken to live with another family. She believed that her two daughters had also been stolen and replaced, and that the two little girls living in her home were kidnapping victims and not her children. Every day, she said, there were little girls at my house who were kidnapped. I warned the commissioner. I told him that their parents had disappeared and that these girls were abused. But these comings and goings of children at my house lasted from 1914 to 1918 without interruption. Her husband, she believed, had also disappeared, and a lookalike had taken his place, and she wanted to get a divorce from this imposter. She said that her real husband had been murdered, and that at least 80 other doubles had replaced him over the course of the past 10 years. The disappearances went far beyond Madame M's household. She thought that there was a double of her building's concierge and doubles of all the tenants. She thought that the people who worked in her neighborhood were imposters and that there were vaults under the city where 28,000 people had been locked up since 1911 so that lookalikes could take their places. She even believed that, from the basement of her own house, she could hear children's voices calling, Mom, please come and get us. This story is heartbreaking. It's nightmarish and terrifying, and I find it really hard to imagine how painful and scary it would be to believe even a fraction of these things. It's also difficult, as someone who does not generally suffer from extreme delusions, to wrap your head around how this case could be true. What is going on here? Well, what Capgra opened up with this article was a Pandora's box of unusual symptoms that were tough to diagnose and even tougher to treat. Capgra syndrome is vanishingly rare, but when it does happen, it is devastating to both those who have it and the people around them who are suddenly seen as enemies and imposters. Today we're going to break down this mysterious delusion and talk a bit about its history, its etiology, and whether or not there really is any treatment. Let's start with a definition. Capgras syndrome, also called Capgras delusion or imposter syndrome, is a psychiatric disorder in which a person believes that people or animals around them have been replaced with doubles. It's a delusional misidentification syndrome, which means that it falls into a class of delusions that deal with misidentification of people, places, and things. It can happen for a brief amount of time, or it can be chronic and it's linked to several other illnesses. Most often, it occurs in people who are diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, but it's also been seen in those with traumatic brain injury and dementia. It's more common in older people with neurodegenerative diseases, but it's also been connected to diabetes, hypothyroidism, and even migraines. Apparently, it can also be brought on by drug use. In one exceptional case, Capgras was reported by an otherwise healthy person who took ketamine. It's more frequently in females than in males, 
with a ratio of about 3 to 2. There are several features particular to Capgra. The first is that the patient has a brain injury or disease. The second is that he or she recognizes that a person or a place is exactly like the real one, but insists that it is not. Third, the imposter is always a person with which the patient is familiar, not a stranger or a vague acquaintance. And fourth, the problem does not improve with any amount of psychological analysis or interpretation. To get a better idea of what we're dealing with, let's hear a more recent case report written in 2016 by Camille Atta and colleagues about a real patient that they treated. Missy, a 58-year-old woman, was brought to a psychiatric emergency room after she called the police and reported there was a stranger in her house. Missy had a history of prior psychiatric hospitalizations and was previously diagnosed with schizophrenia. When the police arrived, she explained that her husband was not her husband, but a stranger. She became argumentative and combative towards the police officers. Due to her history of past psychiatric incidents involving the police, she was brought to the psychiatric emergency room. She was known to have consumed half a pint of brandy, and some of her symptoms were thought to be alcohol-related. When evaluated in the emergency room, she reported her distress was due to the imposter that had recently been substituted for her husband, and that this imposter made her life miserable. She reported that she could not take it anymore and wanted to get rid of him, so she called the police. She exhibited paranoid beliefs such as neighbors poisoning her and reported auditory hallucinations. Her medical history and family history were non-contributory. She worked as a housekeeper but quit six months previously because she thought her employer was conspiring against her. On admission to the hospital, Missy presented as well-groomed, with somewhat agitated mood and a labile effect expressing paranoid ideation. A woman down the street steals my belongings and substitutes it with old stuff. After admission, she was started on an antipsychotic medication. Her paranoid symptoms improved. Her delusions of her husband being substituted by an imposter, however, persisted and did not appear to be related to her alcohol problems. While in the psychiatric unit, she also accused her attending physician of being substituted by an imposter. She was released after three weeks in the hospital with clinical improvement in psychotic symptoms, but the delusion that her husband was an imposter did not improve. So what causes Capgras syndrome? Well, the research has followed a pretty winding path. Early studies looked closely at the similarities between Capgra and a disorder called prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia, which is also called face blindness, is the inability to recognize faces of familiar people, and it's usually caused by damage to the brain. Weirdly, people with prosopagnosia can recognize objects and other visual images without any trouble, but the fusiform area, the part of the brain that's responsible specifically for faces, doesn't work properly. So for many years, researchers believed that Capgras was some sort of relation to prosopagnosia because people with Capgras syndrome had similar problems recognizing familiar people. Then, in 1984, a study by Russell Bauer showed that it was all a bit more complicated. By measuring the galvanic skin response of people with Capgras while they looked at images of familiar faces, Bauer was able to prove that they did actually have autonomic arousal when they saw people they knew. 
Galvanic skin response is basically the ability of the skin to conduct electricity, so it measures how fast electricity travels along the skin, facilitated by sweat. The sweat indicates how activated or aroused a person is, so galvanic skin response is an empirical way to figure out how much a particular stimulus is affecting somebody. This is especially useful in cases where a person might not realize how impacted they are by something or may want to hide how much something is affecting them. What Bauer was able to show using galvanic skin response was that even people with Capgras syndrome, who should theoretically not have any reaction to the faces of people they say they don't know, were actually experiencing the same arousal that anyone does when they see a familiar face. This is pretty cool finding because it suggests that there are at least two pathways to facial recognition, a conscious one that relates to prosopagnosia and the people who literally cannot consciously recognize a face, and the unconscious one that relates to Capgras' particular problem, which is not actually the inability to spot a familiar person, but something more complex. People with Capgras syndrome, it turns out, do perhaps unconsciously recognize the people they claim are strangers, but they just don't quite seem to be able to realize it. A few years after Bauer's discovery, another study came along that shed a little more light on this strange delusion. A paper published in 1990 by the British Journal of Psychiatry explained the findings of psychologists Hayden Ellis and Andy Young. These two took what Bauer had found and went further. They hypothesized that patients with Capgra might actually have something more like a mirror image of prosopagnosia, in which they are consciously able to recognize faces, but they have some kind of damage to the part of the brain that leads to an autonomic emotional response when we see something familiar. If this is true, it would explain why people with Capgra can recognize a person, their husband, child, neighbor, etc., but feel like something about them is very off. In 1997, Ellis and Young did another study. This time, they examined five patients diagnosed with schizophrenia who also had the Capgra delusion. By measuring galvanic skin response, they were able to confirm what they had found before, that people with Capgra can actually recognize faces but don't have a normal emotional arousal response. But even more interestingly, they found that this strange response, or lack thereof, happened even when the participants were looking at familiar faces of people they did not think had been replaced by doubles. This is an important piece of information because it shows that there is probably damage to the part of the brain that's in charge of sorting out what kind of emotional response we have to faces, and this response is calibrated based on how significant that person is to us. So people with Capgra delusion have difficulty with emotional reactions to all familiar faces, even the ones they don't say they have trouble with, but the only time that they report that someone is a double is when that person is close to them. This finding explains another interesting feature of Capgra syndrome, which is that over time, the delusion spreads, so it starts with close family members and loved ones and eventually reaches neighbors and acquaintances. Just as Joseph Capgras described when he wrote about Madame M, even people as distant as random tenants in your building or employees who work in local shops can eventually seem to be replaced with doubles. So Capgras is clearly about a little bit more than just the problem of facial recognition. 
It's related, in fact, to the part of the brain that's responsible for the emotional reaction to that recognition. This means that, for some people, strangely, the problem can be confined just to when one is looking at the other person. So in-person, photographic, or video interactions. As William Herstein and V.S. Ramachandran wrote in their 1997 case study, in these examples, the delusion is modality-specific. They examined a patient who had developed Capgras after a severe brain injury. This 30-year-old man, whom they called D.S., believed that his parents were imposters. He looks exactly like my father, but he really isn't. He's a nice guy, but he isn't my father, Doc. But why was this man pretending to be your father? That's what's so surprising, Doc. Why should anyone want to pretend to be my father? Maybe my father employed him to take care of me, paid him some money so that he could pay my bills. Why should anyone want to pretend why to be my father? Why should anyone want to pretend to be my father? That's what's so surprising, Doc. So D.S. thought that both his mother and father had been replaced, but, and this is really fascinating, he only believed they were imposters when he was looking at them. If he spoke to them on the telephone, he believed he was talking to his real parents. This discovery led Herstein and Ramachandran to think that, for patients like DS, the cause of Capgras delusion is linked to connections between the face processing area in the temporal lobe and the amygdala, the part of the limbic system that relates to emotions. And since patients with Capgras are able to feel emotions in general, and they can recognize faces, but they cannot feel emotions while recognizing familiar faces, the issue may lie somewhere in the communication between this recognition and feeling. In 2010, Herstein slightly revised this theory to explain exactly what that miscommunication leads to. According to my current approach, we represent the people we know well with hybrid representations containing two parts. One part represents them externally, how they look, sound, etc. The other part represents them internally, their personalities, beliefs, characteristic emotions, preferences, etc. Capgras syndrome occurs when the internal portion of the representation is damaged or inaccessible. This produces the impression of someone who looks right on the outside, but seems different on the inside, i.e. an imposter. In all likelihood, Capgras is caused by more than just an impairment of this system, because there have been people with damage to these regions of the brain who do not suffer from these same delusions. Hayden Ellis suggested that what may actually be going on is a combination of both faulty wiring and some kind of impairment in reasoning. If a person has trouble figuring things out and they have a problem with the connection between their facial recognition system and their emotional system, they may develop this particular delusional belief. So far, no one has been able to locate the specific reasoning impairment that would need to be in place in order for this theory to be true, but further research just may prove Ellis right. One of the hardest things about dealing with Capgras syndrome is that there is no real way to treat it. Even diagnosis is hard. The syndrome is very rare, and clearly, it's not well understood. There's no single test to figure out if someone has it, so the only way to make that determination is through evaluation, which takes time. Once a clinician is able to make the diagnosis, there is little that can be done to make the delusion stop. There are, however, some techniques for managing the symptoms and the distress, and they mainly revolve around being sympathetic to just how freaky a delusion like this can be. I mean, imagine for a moment that you believe 
truly believe that your lover or best friend or parent or child is gone and has been replaced by a total stranger who looks just like them. The panic would be unimaginable. So clinicians treating patients with Capgra and other delusions focus on being compassionate to their fears. They also reassure the patient that the loved one they think is gone loves them very much, and they help set up communication that doesn't require face-to-face contact. Just as Herstein and Ramachandran found, for many people with Capgras syndrome, the delusion doesn't translate to voice-only conversation. Through phone calls, it's possible for them to maintain that connection with the person who they believe has been replaced. As we saw in the case study at the top of the episode, antipsychotic medications go a long way, too. We talk about a lot of dark things on this podcast. False memories, psychopathy, PTSD, sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome. But there's something that I find so personally disturbing about this one. The ability to rely on the people we love as we go through life is usually one of our best hopes when dealing with day-to-day challenges and mental illness. Without that stability, it's hard to imagine feeling comfortable in the world. Unfortunately, there's not much that can be done for people with Capgras syndrome today. But I'd like to imagine that emerging technology may someday soon bring a better prognosis. As Atta and colleagues wrote at the end of that 2016 case report, the present state of knowledge regarding the delusional misidentification syndromes like Capgras is still at a very incomplete and preliminary level. This calls for comprehensive evaluation of such patients aimed at a better understanding of such phenomena from both the clinical and research perspective. It's only through such efforts that a fuller understanding of such patients' problems and more effective treatment measures can emerge. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. Our guest stars today were all the members of the Santa Cruz family, Corinne, Mike, and if you stick around till the end, Maple. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review, or at least give us a few stars on iTunes. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod. And visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. for listening, Mama. Thank you for listening, Mama. Beautiful.